This episode of the Black Arts Legacies podcast is sponsored by Meta. Hey, you know, I can work for free. Um, I'm going through this program. This is my dream. How can I help? So they were happy to have the free labor, and I was really happy to have the experience. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. It's really fortuitous, like stars aligning. Brian Carter clearly loves the Northwest African American Museum. Years before NAM existed, he dreamed of starting a Black History Museum in Seattle. He even wrote about that dream in his entrance essay for a museology master's program. So, four years before NAM's opening in 2008, he started as an unpaid intern and rose through the ranks. Like, I remember moving vitrines, like 36 by 36 pedestals and vitrines just by myself, like at two in the morning. Like, Leilani would help. Chico Phillips would help. Barbara would come in. There was just, there was something special because we were so undercapitalized, but such a desire to not, I guess, maybe do it right. Do it to the best of our abilities. And that was a cool moment for me anyway, within the cultural sector. Yeah, you're like, it's not going to be perfect, but it's going to be the best that I can make it be. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, if I needed to go in and, like, I just, I remember, like, I will not have a scuff on a pedestal. I won't have a paint drip. Like, everything will be, like, I was, I just, the community deserved it. Like, it had invested in me to be the curator. And I felt a responsibility to pay it back with, like, everything I had. Like, every ounce, every day every mo it was a i don't know if i've ever poured that much into another position after but it was so worth it in the nine years he was at nam until 2013 brian was an unpaid intern part-time education director then soon after the museum doors opened the deputy director and head curator which required understanding art in a broad way I think we always took a really a wide lens in talking about arts and really tried to push it more towards culture that, at least for me, my, my interpretive approach, and I think this is true of a lot of um, folks who work in black museums, that separating, right, the, the what's considered fine art or separating what's considered folk art or separating what is what is considered like like contextual parts of the artist's life, um, the history, right, of their story and their context. And I feel like our approach, my approach was to try and integrate those more. So did we have shows where it was, right, artworks on the wall with minimal interpretation? Like, rarely. We felt folks needed more, they needed a wider approach angle to be able to understand and and feel close to the art that was on the wall. So I think overall, right, we tried to integrate the story of that artist's particular life as much as their work product, their artworks themselves. So hopefully that was an, an approach that worked. I think it did. Um, but we were really fortunate. I mean, we started off with Jacob Lawrence. I mean, for God's sake. Jacob Lawrence was a Harlem-inspired painter who taught at the University of Washington for years. I remember like um, first time I'd ever done insurance, right, for the museum. And I'm going through and we're doing valuations. And I thought, oh, my God, I can't believe somebody's trusted, right, this 23-year-old kid with these millions of dollars. Um, I remember going over to the James Washington Foundation. We've been there. That was the last episode if you missed it and want to go back and hear about my tour of the James and Janie Washington Cultural Center. 
I did feel connected to the Washingtons because I got to see so much of their lives beyond James as an artist. That made a difference, truly. And it was Tim Detweiler, who was the executive director at the time. And we're just going through pieces and we're looking. And I thought, I've waited my whole life to do something like this. So I felt a gratitude that I am now practicing the thing that I had learned about. Like I, I loved learning how artists had made their way. Right. And we're always trying to focus on regional artists. So for me, always, because my background is history, like always trying to figure out how does the historical context of where you come from, right, which is shared between us, how does that impact your work? Because I felt like those were touchstones that folks who came in off the street, right, might resonate with. Oh, that's my high school. I know that club. I know that street, right? Like, is there a way that I could help build that structure, right, of support for people to then have that artistic experience that was more familiar to them? I thought that was important. Nam is Brian's hopes made real. But it certainly does not live up to all the many hopes connected to the museum and the building it occupies. That's where some controversy enters the story. I'm not going to ignore that controversy, but I'm also looking at what Nam has done for Black art and community. Here's what it's done for Sharon Williams. You might remember her as an arts administrator from episode one about Langston Hughes Performing Arts Institute. As an artist, the Northwest African American Museum was a space that um, there was a program called Arch Crush, ran by theater Puget Sound. And every October, it was like, arts, arts every day for a whole month. And it was like the city was taking over that month. And it allowed me when I ran the Mahogany Project, I was one of the founders um, that ran a Black group called the Mahogany Project. That's now The multi-intersectional Black community group is still around and has been since 2017. But every October, they would provide space um, to me to do a show through Arch Crush. And so through that partnership, I was able to um, do shows that allowed me to highlight other artists. And then I was also able to do my own solo shows as well through that. And so it's just like, it's opportunity. Yes, name is full of opportunity. And many desires about how Nam should use that opportunity make it complicated. While at the same time, the museum's impact is undeniable. I'm Brooklyn, and this is the Black Arts Legacies podcast, a show from Crosscut exploring the history and ongoing impact of Black art and artists in Seattle. This season is all about the spaces, homes, and halls Black Seattle has built to foster generations of community and creativity. Essentially, the soil that nurtures the seeds of legacy past and the flowers of legacy present and future. Nam is a space of hope and disappointment. The building itself was nearly lost, then saved by activists. And there have been two separate museums within its walls. First, the African American Heritage Museum and Cultural Center, and now the Northwest African American Museum. There's a lot to untangle, but from artists like Sharon, I've learned it's too important not to discuss. So let's dive in. First of all, it was one of the first elementary schools to have black teachers and black students. We fought for it. This is Amari Tahir talking to Converge Media in March of 2022. 
He's been part of the story for a long time. As he said, the story of Nam begins with the building that now houses the museum. Starting in 1910, it was the Coleman School, the first school in Seattle to accept Black students while also hiring Black teachers. In 1981, the idea of putting a Black museum in the Coleman School was proposed to Mayor Charles Royer by the Community Exchange, according to Nam. Omari and the African American Heritage Museum and Cultural Center entered the story when several activists came together in 1985. They had been running a series of community-based cultural pilot programs in the neighborhood, but needed a building to consolidate into. Rather than see a site of Black history torn down, they formed the African American Heritage Museum and fought to move their vision for a museum and cultural space for Black youth into the Coleman School. Omari is director of the governing board of that museum. The fight Omari mentioned took years, as he explained in 2020, at a celebration of the Heritage Museum's 35th anniversary. We went in, and uh, that's how we started the first occupation, but we didn't know it was going to last 10 years. It's the longest occupation of a public building in U.S. history. You heard that right. Omari... Earl Debnam, Charlie James, and the late Michael Greenwood occupied the Coleman School building for about 10 years. Nam claims an eight-year occupation, while the Heritage Museum claims it was 13 years. Either way, activists occupied the school starting in 1985 to claim it for their vision of a cultural center complete with a recording studio, TV station, and radio station. And they won. In 1993, the African American Heritage Museum formed a nonprofit, and Seattle Mayor Norm Rice began to work with them. On the Heritage Museum's website, you can find a signed real estate contract for them to buy the Coleman School in 1998. This was all before the Northwest African American Museum, the one that's currently in the building and the topic of this episode, even began. And in addition to occupying the building, the Heritage Museum ran a museum and cultural center out of it. Yeah, there were exhibitions, there were public programs, there was genealogy workshops, there were performances, um, all types of like museum um, and also community service activities that that group was providing. And they were there for a really long time. But the occupiers never saw what they worked for happen. I'm not going to get into all the drama and different narratives about what happened next on this podcast because it would take a while. Just know that in 2003, the Urban League of Metropolitan Seattle bought the Coleman School building from the Seattle School District. Rather than the original vision of a full building museum, the Urban League turned it into 36 housing units and the Northwest African American Museum, headed by Dr. Carver Gayton and Barbara Earl Thomas. NAM gained independent nonprofit status from the Urban League in 2006, two years before it officially opened. When I first came on board, I was told folks, this building doesn't exist if not for those occupiers and them keeping that alive. And I think it's all, it builds on it. It's always evolving. Black museums are always evolving. The African-American Heritage Museum and Cultural Center isn't just history. Starting in June of 2020, the Heritage Museum has continued to occupy the space in front of the museum entrance as a museum without walls until their one demand for control of the building is met. As part of the occupation, they still hold history exhibits, art exhibits, and public programming on that occupied land. Remember when I said that Nam holds many hopes? A lot of those hopes are those of the people who fought so hard to preserve the historic Coleman School and see it continue to serve the needs of Black Seattle, particularly Black youth. At the same time, by the time the Northwest African American Museum opened in 2008, it also held the hopes of people working to make the most of the single-story museum. 
I really appreciate it now. But it was hard work. Like, you gotta understand, like, this is hard work. This is Leilani Lewis. Brian got her involved with NAM after she finished her art history degree. She trained as a volunteer docent, then moved up the ranks into development, all of which happened as the museum was about to open. It was hard for the reasons that we don't really recognize. And I mean, a museum, museum work is, can, be, can be challenging, really difficult. But when you're holding the expectations of 30 years of a people, of, of a community, um, who have expectations of this place to hold all their stories, expectations, and also, you know, people want to doubt. You know, we have, we're in a very white space, a white city. Um, people who want to see it be less than, see it not be perfect, see it not be shining and like of of the caliber that we could we can do and we know what we can do. And so, in that respect, I mean that that's difficult. You have your own community saying, you know, it better be it better be everything <laughs> to everyone. And opening day was crazy. It was huge, <laughs> huge. Like people were crying, people were emotional, people were so happy to see that this place had had actually done something, you know, moved somewhere. And so people were part of the groundbreaking, people that were part of the negotiating with the city and oh, oh, so much, so much more than just the opening day. It was like that, that was just the start. So that was just like the end and a new beginning. That day was a blur for Leilani as more people than that single story museum could hold poured in. Back to Brighton now. But when we did open, you know, there was tons of, is this it? I remember that first day. So many people said, is this it? Because there was an expectation, right? That it would take up all floors, right? Four floors of the Coleman School. It would be 50,000 square foot galleries, you know, giant things. And like, that's just not typically the model for Black museums, especially when they first start, right? Most often it's a storefront or it's somebody's house. And then through, right, like proving itself, expanding its donor base, it then gets larger over time. So I remember that. And it wasn't, it was fine for me. Like, I was, I always was just happy it was there and had the possibility of changing to meet the needs that folks had. Not that it had to be perfect on day one. So let's take a trip inside the museum. The first day it opened, there were two exhibits. First, the semi-permanent journey gallery. Which was the permanent exhibit gallery in what used to be the hallway of the Coleman School. And that was really a survey exhibition that looked at Black history in this region, right? From the first Black folks to step foot on it up to the present. Which Brian did a lot of work on. It was a really intentional community-based approach to solicit stories, artifacts. Um, I traveled all around the state, sitting on folks' couches, just trying to hear stories of their own lives, of their own experiences, of their community's experience. I'm in Yakima, I'm in Boise, I'm in Spokane, I'm in Everett, Vashon Island. I was just all over the place trying to populate, right, primarily that journey gallery, such that it was a nice reflection of the cross-section of Black experiences within the community. No easy endeavor, but that's what a lot of the early years were spent on. The other was the exhibit on painter Jacob Lawrence and sculptor James Washington Jr. It featured art and the tools of their trade. So, probably some of those chisels I marveled at back in James Washington's studio. So we really wanted to show behind the scenes, especially for the first exhibition, what the implements were of these folks. We wanted to make it approachable. We wanted folks to recognize something, even if they didn't recognize the art. 
Around the time of the museum opening, people also gave a lot to the museum. Not just money, priceless things too. Like one of my favorite pieces and maybe not as well-known a piece um, was the original window from the original Mount Zion Baptist Church. I've mentioned it before. Mount Zion is the second oldest black church in Seattle. Someone also donated a Tuskegee Airmen jacket. The Tuskegee Airmen were the first black military aviators in the United States Armed Forces. I gave many, many tours to many school children who might never see and know that that history existed. And so that was that was exciting and great to have that physical representation of a really important moment um, in our history. People really wanted to contribute to having their stories told, it seems. Another example were the donations when the museum had an exhibit about East African people in the Northwest called East by Northwest. A lot of East East African countries were represented in that um, in that exhibit, and people had baskets, and people had things that people had woven and made with their hands, and grandmothers' hands, and great grandmothers, and you know traditions that have been passed down for many years. And these are maybe not maybe we don't ascribe monetary value to them, but things that were really important to and, and held value to that community and, and the traditions that to create those things held value to the community and our community because that's part of our community. Talking to Leilani and Brian, I learned a lot about growth, specifically that as the museum was growing and evolving to have more staff and more partnerships with artists and organizations, so were they. So yeah, I definitely saw an evolution. Um, and there were so many folks who started their career. Like you talked to Leilani, right? Like she was young. She was fresh out of college. Like so many of the things we were trying for us, right, as young administrators and arts professionals, we were trying for the first time ourselves. Like we were stretching our own legs, trying to figure out, is this who we are? And how does our practice come out in the opportunities that we have at the museum? So I think it was a real period of growth and learning and like stumbling all the time. And I, I've never been one to fear failure. Like I'll take a toddler step forward. Like, why not? Like you learn a lot from it. I felt like that's what those first years were. Being a museum that is still growing and figuring things out, the story of its evolution and the evolution of those connected to it doesn't end here. Stay tuned. Meta is proud to be the title sponsor for the Black Arts Legacies Project. Meta builds technologies that help billions of people around the world connect, find communities, and grow businesses. With apps like Facebook, Instagram, Messenger, and WhatsApp, they're able to give people the power to build community and bring the world closer together. To learn more, go to meta.com. Support for the Black Arts Legacies podcast comes from BECU, a member-owned credit union that puts people over profit. For over 85 years, BECU has offered financial services and support to the community. Members have access to local financial centers, over 30,000 ATMs through the co-op network, and online resources. Learn more at BECU.org. Federally insured by NCUA. Remember Jade Solomon Curtis from the Langston Hughes episode? Well, she got to grow and explore at NAMM, too. Her first time there was back when she danced with Donald Byrd's Spectrum Dance Theater. Leilani curated an exhibit that allowed Jade a new dance experience. And we performed it at this um, um, opening 
of this exhibit. And it was a whole different kind of experience than what I'm accustomed to whenever I've done something at a museum. It was, it was incredible. You know, I, I walked down and danced down, down an aisle with people all around me. And, you know, we did all these lifts and all these things, but there were people there. As much as it felt like a performance, I felt like they were dancing with me. And so being able to be in those kind of environments and showing kind of the power of what, what it is to change an audience into a, a group of witnesses, it's a, a beautiful thing. So yeah, Nam was one of the first places where I felt like I experienced that. I've actually performed at Nam several times um, and it's been really, interesting to kind of watch the evolution and changes um, that's happened at NAM um, in terms of them presenting artists, um, more contemporary artists. Not long before the COVID-19 pandemic took hold, Jade was planning to do another dance experiment at NAM. NAM was one of those few places that understood a vision that I had. I have said from the moment that I launched my company, Nonprofit uh, Solo Magic, like I'm really interested in in atypical and kind of non-traditional performances, right? And engagements, really thinking about immersing people in environments. I, I know from experience that people oftentimes who come to, to performances, um, either they walk away having some understanding or they don't understand at all. And that has a lot to do with them not feeling like they can insert themselves into the work. I think that museum settings allow for a more immersive experience. Um, and again, traditionally, it is not often that you see dance and choreography in a museum unless it's part of someone else's exhibit. But so how do you, Again, my question to myself was, how do I take this traditional art form and this, this way in which I'm accustomed to experiencing it and um, creating almost like a 360 model of it, right? So that people can walk around it, so that people can be inside of it. Um, and again, like I said, it wasn't something that I ever got to fully do at NAM but it was an idea and a concept that they understood and that they were willing to explore. Um, so hopefully it's something that happens in the future. Having heard about Brian's approach to curating art in the early days, I wanted to hear from the current CEO of NAM, Lanisha DeBartelabin, about the museum's approach to art programming now. That approach starts with the museum's first curator and early director, Barbara Earl Thomas. Going back to the early days, uh, Barbara Earl Thomas is an extraordinary artist in her own right. And she served as the founding deputy director of the museum. And then she served as the executive director of the museum for five years. And she built a solid foundation upon which the museum built strong relationships with Black artists, with the community, with educational institutions, with um, art teachers in the schools. 
Lanisha, I found out after our conversation, is a board member for CrossCut's parent company, Cascade Public Media. Now, what I did know going in was that she came to NAM four and a half years ago by way of the Charles H. Wright Museum in Detroit, my personal favorite Black History Museum. Her long history with Black museums shapes her passion and vision for NAM. Black museums have to be more than museums. We are more than a museum. We are more than just a traditional space that um, showcases and conserves um, art on the wall. Our culture is a living culture. And so our programs must reflect that dynamic, vibrant movement called Blackness. And it is expressed in a variety of ways, through dance, through vocal experiences. And so we showcase Black dancers in our programs. We are the first museum, to our knowledge, to create our own choir, permanent ongoing choir, and we call our choir the African American Cultural Ensemble, ACE, because the stories that we tell are too important to just be on a wall or to just be in a book in our reading room. These stories have life, have movement, have sound. These stories have um, just the power to heal and to mend the wounds that run deep in our hearts, in our lives, in our communities, within our relationships, uh, in society. And so the arts require multi-dimensionality. The arts require us to spread ourselves beyond one, two, or even three platforms, but we have to cover extensive ground when it comes to doing justice to Black cultural presence. For those of you like me who haven't yet been inside the Northwest African American Museum, it does have a performance space called the Legacy Gallery. COVID has been quite the storm for NAM, like many art organizations. We just believe in that African concept, that African proverb that says, smooth seas don't make skillful sailors. NAM took some time to rethink how to do what it does and took programs outside and virtual. We have an extensive reading room that has African-American literature, We took that outdoors and created what we call Knowledge is Power book giveaway program. And since the start in July of 2020, we have distributed about 15,000 African-American children's books to children so that they can um, see themselves, see who they can be, build their own um, collection of library books, of books that they can read and imagine um, their own future possibilities. Lanisha told me that she's excited about NAM's future, about fighting for equity and bringing community healing after such a long, rough pandemic. Yeah, we're excited. We're excited about our future. And so Black museums play a role, a significant role, in moving us to wellness and wholeness. And that's what we're focused on. Um, 
into the future that is unknown, uncharted, but full of possibility. And we're looking forward to elevating, elevating Black art, Black artists, Black heritage, Black history, Black culture, and Black life as we move into this future that's unknown, but can be so empowering and can be so transformative. That's the wonderful thing about the future. We can create the kind of future that we desire. I don't know if I ever thought of Black museums as like social justice warriors, the way you just said that, but it is good to know that you that that's like part of the plan for the future is to be out fighting for social justice. We have to be. We have to be. There's no neutrality when it comes to museums and the work that we can do to challenge, critique, and change society. To wrap, here's Brian once more. I asked him what exhibit he curated he was most proud of. It was pretty cool and multidimensional. I did an exhibition um, that looked at uh, African-American healthcare practitioners. Um, It was called Checking Our Pulse. And the way it started, it was a partnership with Swedish Medical Center. Swedish was coming up on a, I got to say it was this 100th anniversary. For that milestone, they wanted to do an exhibit at NAMM. We'd love to sponsor an exhibition that highlights, right, Black doctors, nurses, medical professionals in this region, because so many of them had worked at Swedish or been affiliated with Swedish. And I had been to so many exhibitions that were like, first Black doctor, first Black nurse, first Black. And I love the idea of cultural celebration. It's wonderful, right? It's like, these are our stories. They're important. Let's celebrate them. But for me, I thought that there was a potential power in these stories to actually improve health outcomes in the folks that were coming to the museum, that lived around the museum, and that were within our community. This is where it gets super cool. The same way Jade got to make dancing interactive, Brian turned a celebration of Black healthcare workers into so much more. Like we gave away condoms. There was a section that dealt with HIV. At that time, 50% of all new diagnoses of HIV were within the Black community. How can one help prevent, right, higher transmission rates? Like how can we reduce that? Condoms, like condoms in a gallery, in a museum, right? We put a We Fit in. There's a section about diabetes, right? So there are these people. I remember the nurse. I can't remember her name, but she had worked her entire life with folks that were challenged, right, by kind of the ravages of diabetes. And we put a we fit and we said, if you just do this, right? I think it was like a tennis game for a minute. You'll burn this amount of calories. We had, um, God, we had health fairs where we would partner with, uh, I think it was like once a month, we'd have Zumba classes. We'd bring people in and we had HIV screenings, right? Because I thought that was really important. Here's a safe space. Come in and figure out, right? We had like lipid cholesterol panels so that people were aware. Um, we brought mammogram trucks in. Um, so for me, yeah, it was important that we share this history within our community, but can we take the energy, right? The dollars, the power of these stories and 
actually help our community to be healthier. Like the people who come in today, right? They exist in a particular context. They have needs, they have challenges. They, how, right, are you making meaning between what's on the walls and that person's life? And I thought that that was a, um, a really good merger of those two concepts with that particular exhibition. The walls that now house Nam have meant so much to so many people. They're the students who attended the Coleman School before it closed, the activists who occupied and saved the building, those who helped shape Nam into the institution it is today, and the many who experienced the living culture Nam cultivates, both inside and out. The Northwest African American Museum holds many hopes, and I don't think it could have ever lived up to all of them. Even if the building followed the vision of the African American Heritage Museum and Cultural Center to be multiple floors designed to engage Black youth in the Central District, it would still struggle to be everything to everyone who invested time and passion for that purpose. And NAM, a single-story Black museum decades in the making, carries the weight of those hopes, in addition to the hopes of those continuing to occupy the outside. NAM holds many hopes because it's important and vital. Black Seattle has dreamed of and fought for its own museum and cultural space for decades. And for this one to be the best it can possibly be, they're gonna keep fighting. While the legacy and the controversy continue, I have to wrap up this episode of the Black Arts Legacies podcast. This episode was reported and produced by Brooklyn Jameson Flowers, Datme, with additional reporting by Jasmine Mahmood and Kemi Adeyemi. The story editors are Sarah Bernard and Mark Baumgarten, also the executive producer. Audio support from Jonah Cohen. You can subscribe to Black Arts Legacies wherever you listen. And if you like the show, please review it. It makes me feel less like I'm talking into the void. For more on Black Arts Legacies and other CrossCut podcasts, go to crosscut.com podcasts. For more on the Black Arts Legacies project, including video profiles on Jade and Sharon and written profiles on James Washington and Barbara Earl Thomas, plus way more celebration of Black arts in Seattle, go to blackartslegacies.com. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit crosscut.com. And if you'd like to support the work we do at Crosscut, go to crosscut.com membership. In addition to supporting our journalism, members receive complete access to on-demand programming from KCTS9, Seattle's PBS station. I'll catch y'all next time for a Black art space that closed 40 years ago. Bye, y'all.